Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. All right, you can have a seat. Um, So we have a a special guest that I want you to meet uh, today. His name is Dr. Nathan Willoughby, and and, uh, Dr. Willoughby is the Dean of the College of, of Christian Ministry at Anderson University, which is my alma mater. It's where I did my undergrad work. It's where I did my graduate work. Uh, I have an incredible love in my heart for that place and how it poured into my life. And I believe very much to whatever degree God has been able to use my life, Anderson University has been a huge, huge part of that. And... Uh, Dr. Willoughby is also the dean. Part of that responsibility is the dean of the School of Theology, which primarily is uh, graduate courses um, in what traditionally has been referred to as seminary. And it's just a delight uh, to have Nathan with us today. And I wanted to invite him up to give an opportunity for you to get a little bit better acquainted with him and of Anderson University. So would you welcome Dr. Nathan Willoughby. Yeah, so Nathan, first of all, thank you for uh, coming out from Anderson and, uh, and coming out to Fairfax, hanging out with us. I know that uh, in addition to just being with us, you're going to spend some time with our students uh, tonight, which is very cool, meet with our staff on Tuesday. So thank you for all of that. Um, first of all, just kind of talk a little bit about Anderson University and some of the offerings that... Are there? I know that it's as most people I think are aware. It's a it's an in-person school, uh, has a campus there in Anderson, but also a, a growing online number of offerings in terms of programs, both undergrad and and graduate level. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So we are, you know, historically primarily a residential college uh, where folks like us went and studied and. I have a variety, there's like 55 majors or something um, from engineering, nursing, your typical liberal arts areas, ministry specific, teacher's education, all that stuff. But online, we've been growing our areas of programs. The the first space really to go online was ministry because we had all these pastors in various places looking to stay in their ministry context and then come study online. But uh, we have undergraduate ministry programs uh, where Students can come and study online wherever they're living, and it's designed to either for a person with transfer credits to complete the ministry portion or to do the liberal arts plus the ministry portion, and then you can even double major in communications or business. Uh, We also at the grad level have an MBA and doctor of business and master of organizational leadership, but the, the ministry programs are a master of arts of Christian ministry, um, a Master of Theological Studies, which is a little more academic focus as opposed to ministry focus, and then the Master of Divinity, which is the program we did. Program we did, yeah. Uh, and uh, so those are those are our offerings right now online, uh, and I think they're going to continue to grow. That's an area that, as higher ed across the country is going, we're seeing more folks wanting to either change career paths or come back after a time away. And so we're seeing some definite growth in that kind of area. Now talk a little bit, you know, when we talk about the undergrad program and oftentimes there are kind of traditional students that are coming out of high school 
going right into college. Uh, sometimes there are folks that do their undergrad and then immediately go and do their master's, but that's probably not the growing edge, right, in terms of really who is doing master's work in all areas, but particularly in biblical studies, in theology. Talk a little bit about kind of the demographic that yeah. is beginning to grow. Yeah. So we have about one-third in-person of the graduate students and then two-thirds online. And the demographic, I, I think our average age is like upper 40s. It's uh, the mean or the median. I forget which one of our averages. But it's, um, you know, folks who are sensing this call to ministry, and some of them, they're still doing another job, and some of them are completely shifting gears with their lives, or some of them are uh, really seeing this as, I've got, there's like an immigration attorney who just wants to be better at teaching the Bible study classes. And so she's taking all these Bible study classes. We've got students from around the world, literally, in, in a class I have in person. I've got a student from Jordan, a student from Pakistan, a student from Argentina, uh, all in that classroom with a bunch of U.S. students. Online, we have at least four continents covered with missionaries and other folks across the, across the world. And so it, it really is one of those things. I had a 98-year-old audit a class in the fall. Um, so... The, the sky's the limit, you know. I don't know. Why did you look at me when you said I, at 98? Oh, you know her. You, you saw, know her. You saw him look directly at me on that. So, yeah. You know that student. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things that we talk a lot about here is um, advancing the kingdom in every channel of culture. And we want to be astute um, Christians, no matter what channel of culture that we're in, understand the issues. And I, I talk to a growing number of people. I would say they fall into two categories that are interested in graduate work. Some that are sensing um, a different kind of direction vocationally and the possibility of going into vocational ministry and are looking to do some graduate work uh, to prepare for that in theological studies, biblical studies. Uh, but then also folks that have another career path but really are looking to just really grow as it relates to their understanding of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And uh, so talk a little bit about that in terms yeah. of opportunities there. So we have at both the undergraduate and the graduate level, uh, but I'll talk grad just for, for yeah. this purpose. You know, we've built this stuff so that it'll scaffold. So we have like a five-course ministry foundation certificate. And I've had a few students uh, in that program uh, a guy, I'm mean, his advisor, he's a retired attorney, but he's got these opportunities. And he's like, you know what? I just want to dig into this stuff. And so he's going to take a Bible class, a church history class, a theology class, and some sort of practical ministry class, and then a fifth class of his choice. Now, he can choose to go on and take like eight more classes and get a master's degree, but it's one of those stepping stones because the, we all interpret the world with particular lenses, uh, one of the most important lenses is that of our faith. And some of these classes are going to give us the, the ability to interpret our world with a little different skill set, with some different tools, and to, to go alongside the experience we have in churches, but to hopefully support the opportunities we all have to serve in our vocations, whether that be professional ministry or that be just being salt and light in wherever God has placed us in the world. And, and that's one of the ways that I really like the online. I didn't grow up loving online until I saw the student body that drew together online. I was like, there's, there's so much diversity in where people are coming from. Right. And to, to see the ability to help 
facilitate people growing wherever they're at. It's just, it's more accessible that way. And through the Trellis program, which we're mm -hmm. connected to, and Anderson has been uh, a really important cog in that, uh, there's the opportunity for undergrad students to do an accelerated three-year program, work in a local church while they're doing it, and also do their uh, degree, come out with no debt, which is a huge yeah. deal. And uh, also folks to do their graduate degree in the same way, two-year accelerated program, work in a local church during that time. Yeah. And so it's been really, I just want to commend you mm -hmm. for how Anderson has really stepped up uh, in terms of the Trellis program. It's been very cool. Uh, we love Trellis, you know, we have a Trellis intern here at Fairfax and that we've seen, we have coast to coast. We have students all the way in Washington State and all the way here in Virginia. Yeah. And just one thing, I forgot to mention earlier, because of your association with Fairfax Church, it unlocks special scholarships from donors that have supported folks from churches like Fairfax that have a relationship with Anderson University. And so all of our ministry programs have 50% underwritten scholarship from donors um, and undergrad as well. So it's, it's great to partner with churches. Yeah. I'd love to answer any questions. I think it's, I love the place. Yeah, yeah. So one last thing. So you've got a lot of parents here with kids at all different ages, so senior high, junior high, on down. Um, talk a little bit about um, kind of what uniquely Anderson is positioned to do as it relates to faith and education. So I think if you like going to church at Fairfax, um, the way that Pastor Rod has been shaped is the same way theologically that the ministry department at Anderson has been shaped. Mm -hmm. And Anderson itself, it has all, like through its history, had two explicit goals that are really important for that developmental age of like 18 to 22. You know, this is a time when people are developing their own faith. They're wrestling psychologically, faith development, human development. So many things are kind of anxious and uh, we're, we're navigating those things, you know. Um, but Anderson has this explicit commitment that a lot of schools have, but this is one that's like directly in the theological trajectory of Fairfax Church, is that we have this explicit commitment to both facilitate the academic, the career preparation, the vocational discernment, but to do that in a space that's also explicitly trying to do spiritual formation, faith development, so that when questions arise, which will arise, the faculty are all kind of prepared and feel their own calling to help within that, whether that's a student on the path to med school, cybersecurity training, ministry training, nursing training, that all of us see, I mean, I really, I know that people work at AU because they see it's a calling. Uh, we work there because we want to be, and I always say interaction with students is the thing that makes the work the best. Yeah. And so we have that explicit kind of two-part commitment that is in alignment with churches like Fairfax to, to try to do that so that we can unlock wherever God has called students to. And we know God doesn't only call students to ministry. God, thank goodness, right? It would be a boring world. Um, but that God's calling students all over the place and that we want to hold those two things together while we help unlock that potential. Yeah, so for people that are maybe interested in pursuing a conversation, there's a QR code, I think, here. You're going to be out in the lobby afterwards. Uh, the website has a lot of great information. Uh, anything else in terms of just like uh, taking the next step? Yeah, come come talk to me. You can grab my card. Um, we can 
get you in touch with someone specific to a program you might be interested if it's not just ministry. I know a lot of things about the school, but there's every once in a while, I don't know everything. Uh, but uh, thanks for your welcome to have me here. I, I, I still believe one of the ways that churches and universities can work together is, is to help each other do the work that we're each called to. And yeah. so I'm thankful to be part of what you all are doing here today. Nathan, thanks so much for being with us today. Would you show your appreciation, Nathan Wilby? Since Nathan, uh, it's been just a few years that Nathan has been in the role that he's in, and uh, some really exciting changes have uh, taken place under his leadership. And so it's a really, really great time, I think, in the life of uh, Anderson University. All right, so we're in the third week of this study in the book of Esther. And just a little reminder again, a little context as we go into this third week. book of Esther follows the Israelites who stayed behind in Babylon after basically 70 years or so of captiv- captivity. Most of their friends, most of their family went back to Jerusalem when they were allowed to do that. But there was a group that stayed behind. Esther's parents were part of that group that stayed behind. Babylon has now been conquered by another rising world power, Persia. King Xerxes is now the king of Persia. Esther's parents have died. And Esther, they died when Esther was just a little girl and Esther was then raised by her cousin, Mordecai, uh, who raised her basically as his own daughter. King Xerxes has banished uh, one queen and he's now looking for another queen. Esther basically wins an international beauty contest uh, that's put on by the king, becomes the, the queen of Persia. And so this little orphan girl from a persecuted religious minority becomes the second most powerful person in Persia, in the Persian Empire, second richest person in the Persian Empire, just an amazing rise uh, to power and influence. And in the first four chapters, I keep telling you this each week, that uh, there is so much uh, intrigue and, and murder and, and plots that are being developed. Like if you like intrigue, if you like to watch shows that have intrigue or whatever, like my wife, her favorite shows are the ones like if they're not shooting someone within five minutes, she's bored. Like if you, if you, like, if you like something that has intrigue, you will love Esther. You will love the book of Esther because it is filled with all of that kind of intrigue. And in the first four chapters, uh, there's all this intrigue, these murder plots, this plan to commit genocide, all of that. And Esther finds herself in the middle of all of that, all of that stuff that's going on. And even though God is not explicitly mentioned in the book, God is at work behind the scenes using Esther, using other people to accomplish his mission, his will in this world. And Esther is definitely the protagonist in the story, but today I want to look at the antagonist in the story. It's a man by the name of Haman. And Haman is this rising star in the administration of King Xerxes. And uh, it's probably, Haman is probably one of the best case studies in Scripture on the topic of pride and, and how pride, basically what happens when pride goes unchecked. Now, we're going to focus our attention today on chapters 5 and 6, but to get to chapters 5 and 6, 
We have to kind of go back to chapter 3 that we looked at last week and a little section that starts chapter 3. This gives you a little bit of context. This is what it says. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. And all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. But the king had commanded this concerning him, or for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now, these events, it starts, this passage starts with these events. These events that are being referred to here at the beginning of the passage are referring to a plot, another plot in chapter 2 that we didn't even talk about over the first two weeks. It's another assassination plot. It's a plot that has taken place between two of the king's officers who've become angry with the king and they've conspired to assassinate the king. But Mordecai, somehow Mordecai finds out about it. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king who thwarts the plot and he has the two men executed. Now, at this point in the story, King Xerxes doesn't realize, he doesn't know, that Mordecai is the guy that basically saved his life. Esther's cousin that's raising her, that has raised her from uh, childhood. He doesn't know that it's Mordecai that has saved his life. But the king is feeling pretty good right now. He's taken care of uh, some folks. He's gotten rid of some people that were gonna do him uh, harm. Uh, It's opened up some spots in the administration to fill. And so he's got some spots to fill. So one of the things that he does in kind of moving the people around in the administration, you know how that works living in Washington, D.C., he elevates Haman to the highest position in his administration. He basically makes him the prime minister of Persia. And then the king commands everyone to bow and to pay honor to Haman. Now, here's what's interesting about the king having to order people to bow and pay honor honor to Haman. In ancient hierarchical societies like this, and this is not just true like back in the day, back in in ancient Persia, but some of you are from cultures, connected to cultures around the world where there's still kind of this that you see within culture, but certainly in ancient hierarchical societies like this, bowing to those who are in power is pretty much instinctive. Like you just kind of automatically did that. In fact, people even bowed to their elders. They, they bowed and showed respect to their elders. They bowed and, and honored their elders. That was just something that you did. So the fact that the king had to order people to bow to Haman, who's in this huge position, prime minister of the country, and he has to order people to actually bow and to show him some respect and to show him some honor as an indication of just how obnoxious a person that Haman was and how much people just disliked him for whatever reason. And we'll find out some of those as we go through this, that people just kind of disliked him. But Mordecai refused to bow and to honor Haman. And there's obviously something that Mordecai sees in Haman that causes him to not want to respect him, to not want to honor him, to not want to show him that respect. And some of it had to do, some of it has to do with pride. Haman was a man that was filled with just a great deal of pride, and it was the destructive kind of pride. 
And you see that in a number of places in the narrative, but nowhere do you see it clearer than in chapter 5. This passage starts in verse 10. This This is Haman that is talking, calling together his friends and Jerash, his wife. Haman boasted to them, boasted to his wife, boasted to his wife, boasted to his friend, boasted to his wife about his vast wealth. And he boasted, get this, he boasted to his wife about his many sons. She's the one that gave birth to the sons. And he's boasting to his wife about all of the sons that he has and all the ways that the king has honored him and how he has elevated him above other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet that she gave. Now, he doesn't know at this point that this is a setup that's going to turn bad on him. He's just at this point like, you know, I got invited. I'm the only one that got invited. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. So Haman is definitely someone who is dealing with a lot of pride issues. And I want to just begin by talking about what pride is and some of the things that pride does in our lives. And some of these things are things that we see in Haman's life. Some of them are things that we see in other biblical narratives. Some of them are just things that we see in life, just as we look at people and see people and see how people function, like just things that we observe in everyday life. So let's talk first about what pride is. Lots of different ways that we could define pride, but let's just go at it this way. At its core, pride is being preoccupied with self. At its core, it's being being self-absorbed. Pride is being being absorbed with self. It's all about whether I'm getting the acknowledgement that I deserve. It's all about whether I'm getting the recognition I deserve, the appreciation that I deserve, the honor that I deserve, all of that. Pride leads to us becoming obsessed with how people view us, with how people think about us, with how people see us, with how people look at us. It's kind of an obsession with all of that. Humility is not thinking of yourself less it is, or is not thinking less about yourself. It is actually thinking about yourself less. When you meet a humble person, you, you actually don't tend to think of them as being humble. Like when you meet someone who is humble, the first thing that you think is not, oh, wow, what a humble person. When you meet someone who's humble, you, you, what you tend to notice is how interested they are in you how they are focused not on themselves, how they are focused on you, how they aren't focused on making sure that you know their resume. They're focused on getting to know you. Uh, They aren't focused on how you are treating them. They are focused on how they are treating you. They are not focused on making sure that you see them. They are focused on making sure that they see you. Like when you're in the presence of someone it's humble, Like you feel seen. You feel like they see you. There are some people that, you know, they walk in the room and you feel like the most important person is coming to the room. And there are other people when they walk in the room, you feel like you are the most important person in the room. And that's what humble people 
do. They just make you feel good about you. Their preoccupation is not with you seeing them. It's with them seeing you. Like they really see you. That's what humility is all about. Haman was obsessed with telling others all the ways that the king had honored him. All the ways that he perceived Esther was honoring him. He was obsessed with what the king thought about him. He was obsessed with what other people thought about him. That's why it drove him crazy when just one person, just one person was not willing to bow to him. Like everyone, an order had been given by the king for everyone to bow to him. So everyone bowed when they saw Haman, except for just one person. There was just one person that didn't bow, and it drove him absolutely crazy. Pride actually robs us of experiencing satisfaction in our accomplishments. Think about this. Haman had accomplished so much. He had risen to the position of prime minister of one of the most powerful empires in the history of the world. And he had risen to that actually fairly quickly. But he says, all of that gives me no satisfaction as long as Mordecai will not give me the acknowledgement, the recognition, the honor that I deserve. That's one of the things that pride does. Pride just doesn't allow us to actually enjoy and appreciate our own accomplishments. Like there's a reason that you sometimes see these incredibly talented people, incredibly gifted people, people with all these amazing gifts who have accomplished so much, who have uh, risen to leadership in so many different areas, and yet they are still miserable because they still feel like somehow they are being underappreciated, that they're not getting the recognition they deserve, that they are not getting the acknowledgement that they deserve. Pride can move us from a life characterized by wisdom to a life characterized by foolishness. Why is that? Because pride keeps us from learning from our mistakes. Pride causes us to to justify everything. Uh, A relationship fails. A, A job doesn't work out. A position at work doesn't work out. We don't get... Um, the promotion that we uh, thought that we deserved. And it's always about someone else. It's always about him. It's always about her. It's always about the circumstances. But it's never because of us. So we never learn. Humble people learn really quick. They learn really fast. They, They seek to understand what they've done wrong, even if someone else has also done something wrong. Even if only 50% is their fault, even if only 40% or 30% or 20% or 5%, even if only 5% is their fault, humble people like want to understand what their part was so they can address it. And that allows them to learn so much faster. It allows them to grow so much faster. Pride causes us to respond in unhealthy ways to confrontation. It can cause us to dismiss the person 
who is confronting us or ignore the person who is confronting us or attack the person who is confronting us. Or it can cause us to be so devastated by the confrontation that we just melt down. So the the reality is then that people stop confronting us because they know it just won't go well if they confront us. So they just quit trying. And so we just keep doing the same thing. We keep making the same mistakes. We keep functioning the same way. We keep saying the same things. We keep making the same choices. Like because, because we cannot deal with confrontation, people stop confronting us and it just stops us from being able to learn and to grow. Pride can also cause us to be opinionated in a way that doesn't allow us to consider even consider the possibilities that our opinions are wrong or that our opinions need to maybe be revised. We see this in culture all the time, just the possibility that our opinions are wrong or maybe they need to be revised or maybe they need to be more nuanced. Our opinions need to be a little bit more nuanced or maybe they need to to better acknowledge the complexity of the situation or the multi-layers of the situation. And they need to kind of understand all of that complexity and all of that nuance. Like pride keeps us from, it causes us to be opinionated in a way that will not allow us to consider the possibility that maybe we need to rethink our opinions. But here's one of the most destructive things about pride. It's how it hides itself. Pride hides itself. It destroys you without you even knowing what's going on. Like we tend to be way more aware of others' sins. No, let me say it again. We tend to be way more aware of our other sins than we are of the sin of pride. Sins that we struggle with. There's lots of sins that we struggle with that we tend to be way more aware of than we are of the sin of pride. Here's a good example. Up to this point in the sermon, most of you have probably been thinking about a couple of other people in your life who are dealing with pride. And you're thinking, I hope he is listening to this. I hope she is listening to this. I know who I need to send this to. Rod, can I get a copy of the transcript? Because... I know who needs to hear. As soon as you started talking about this, I knew exactly who it was that needed to hear this message. That's just the way that pride works. That's what makes it so destructive. It's so much easier to see pride in others than it is to see it in ourselves. So, what's the answer? Well, the answer is definitely not religion. Religiosity tends to Make pride worse. I grew up in the church. I love the church. I, I grew up being surrounded by people in the church. And I, I, saw, I saw the positives of what would happen in church. I also saw the negatives that could happen in church. And I can tell you that there is no pride quite as deadly as religious pride. Just because you use God language doesn't mean that somehow magically pride goes away. Some of those prideful people in the world are religious people. Because when you become convinced that all that matters is that you follow the rules 
and that you think you are successfully, pretty successfully following the rules, then you tend to become prideful and self-righteous and judgmental of everyone that you think is not performing quite as well as you are. So if religiosity isn't the cure, what is? Well, we begin to see the answer in chapter 6. Look at verse 1 and following. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed uh, Bethana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing. Nothing's been done for him up to this point, the attendants answered. And the king said, well, well, who is in the court? Now Haman, I love the way this all plays out. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. And the king says, oh, Haman, we'll bring him in. So Haman's pride has led him to the place where not only does he want to kill Mordecai, he wants to make a public, public spectacle of Mordecai. He's, he's built this 75-foot-tall uh, gallows to hang Mordecai on, and, and he wants to come in and ask permission of the king to be able to hang Mordecai on the same day that the Jews are going to be slaughtered. But the night before, as the text says, the night before the king cannot sleep. And so he looks at this book. It's the book that chronicles um, events that have taken place, not only in the life of the palace, but just in the life of the country, just kind of chronicles these. It keeps a history of all of these. And he realizes in reading through, through this, this book that chronicles all of these events that it's Mordecai who is the one that actually saved him from this assassination attempt that had taken place. And so he wonders, has anything been done to reward him for that? Has anyone said thanks even to him for that? And it's at that moment that Haman comes in. And this is what happens next. I love this. Verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, well, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Obviously, he's not wanting to name me right now, but obviously he's talking about me. So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head, and then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So when the king asked Haman 
what he should do for the man the king delights to honor. Haman thinks he's talking about him and he comes up with this fascinating proposal that involves wearing the king's robes and riding on the king's horse just like a conquering hero parading through the town. And the robe is of particular significance because wearing the king's robe is not just about honoring the person who is wearing it. You you see it even when Jonathan gave his robe to to David. It wasn't just about honoring David, that that wearing the king's robe is is the way for the king to say, I delight in this person. I care about this person. I love this person. And that's why Haman is so excited because he's convinced that if the people out there can see how much the king loves him, if the people out there can see how much the king delights in him, if the people out there can see how much the king cares about him, then he must be a person of worth. He must be a person of value. But then come verses 10 and following. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested For, for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. (laughs) Like, I love what you came up with. I love the plan you came up with. Do everything that you have recommended. So Haman got the robe. He got the horse. He robed Mordecai, and then he was the one that led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights in. It's like he is being forced to stand out in public and point to Mordecai and say, this is the man. Like, this is the man. This is the man that the king delights to honor. Now, this is an absolute reversal of fortunes, both for Mordecai and for Haman. Mordecai was about to be laid low, and now he's lifted high. Haman was about to reach the pinnacle of life, the pinnacle of his career, and now he has been forced to assume the role of a servant. And you just see that principle. You just see that principle over and over and over again in Scripture. Humble yourself and be exalted. Exalt yourself and be humbled. Lose yourself to find yourself. The way up is actually down. The path to power is to make yourself a servant. The way to true wealth is to actually give your wealth Away, the way to influence is to not care about your influence and just love people. It's the way of Jesus, it's the way of those who follow Jesus. Now, the reality is that Haman actually didn't ask ultimately, he didn't ask for the wrong thing. Like, we all want what, want what Haman wanted, like, we all want someone that we think the world of 
to think the world of us. Like that's, that's in all of our hearts. That's in all of our souls. We want someone who we, who we think the world of to think the world of us. So Haman didn't ask for the wrong thing. Haman asked the wrong king. Because there's another king who, who wants to clothe us in his kingly robe. It's the robe of his righteousness. And by clothing you in it, he is saying to you, I delight in you. I love you. Like you are of value to me. You are a person of worth. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what I've done for you. Mordecai was saved because Haman exchanged places with him. But Haman exchanged places with Mordecai involuntarily. Like he didn't want to exchange places with Mordecai. Like Haman didn't want to clothe Mordecai in the robe of the king. He didn't want to lead Mordecai through the city streets. He didn't want to do that. It was the last thing that he wanted to do. But Jesus exchanged places with you and with, I, with me voluntarily. Like on the cross, he voluntarily took on your sin and my sin so that we could take on his righteousness. On the cross, he took on your brokenness so that you could take on his wholeness. On the cross, he took on your death, my death, so that we could take on his life. Like on the cross, voluntarily, he took on everything that was ours so that we might have everything that is his. That is his. Like and he did all of that voluntarily because he delights in you. He loves you. He values you. He treasures you. And when you realize that, when you realize that the king loves you that much, that the king delights in you that much, it humbles you and pride just begins to melt away. Our obsession with recognition begins to melt away. Our obsession with acknowledgement begins to melt away. Our preoccupation with how other people view us begins to melt away. Our preoccupation with how other people think about us begins to melt away because we know that the one that we think the world of thinks the world of us. God, we confess to you that sometimes um, we lose sight of the depth of your love. And we turn to other kings, other kings to experience the recognition that our heart desires, uh, other kings to experience the affirmation that our soul so desperately needs. 
other kings to say to us that we are valued, other kings to say to us that we are persons of worth. And Lord, we confess when we have turned to other kings and lost sight of the one true king who delights in us and loves us above and beyond anything that we could imagine. And so, Lord, for those of us who have said yes to the king, for those of us who have clothed ourselves, have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, may we be reminded of the clothes that we are wearing, of what they represent, of what they mean. And may we walk in the reality of For those of us that have never said yes to what you have done for us on the cross, have never been clothed truly in the righteousness of Christ, I pray that today would be the day that we take on the robe, that we are clothed in the the kingly robe of your righteousness that changes everything the way that we relate to you, the way that we relate to our families, the way that we relate to our friends, the way that we relate to our coworkers that just changes everything. We pray this in the name of Christ. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church Podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.